the, um, the, the text we're looking at tonight is the last five and a half verses of Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll read those in just a minute, um, but it, it uh, might be a good thing for us to take a quick glimpse at the first three or four verses of chapter 12. Uh, which, uh, of course, in the, in the mind of the Hebrews preacher, he's, he's, he's setting up in chapter 11 what he's going to, the point he wants to make, and he wants to bring home in chapter 12. And, of course, he has these movements all the way through this, uh, this sermon. Um, I, every time I get into, into the Hebrews uh, letter or sermon or whatever you want to call it, I really am. Um, impressed all over again at, at, at the rhetorical skill of uh, this, this brother, whoever he was. But in the first part of chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, this is verse 1 of chapter 12, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So in the first three verses of chapter 12, he makes this comparison. Not only did, not only did these folks that... Um, uh, we've been learning about uh, in, in that old covenant of time uh, suffer very much. And we're about to read the extent to which they did suffer a lot. He's saying the one you are following every, every day and the one whose name you wear, he also suffered in the same way. He endured much. Uh, and then in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's setting up a con contrast there. In contrast to Jesus, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And uh, following hard upon the very last part of chapter 11, there's that other contrast there. So he wants them to realize, I, I know you've got it rough. I know that you are a body of believers at risk. Um, but, you know, probably not been handling it in the very best way. Um, you're forsaking getting together sometimes, chapter 10. Um, and you need to look at this in the verses that follow in 12. You need to look at this as, as, as discipline coming from, from your father. Fathers discipline their sons. And I know it's difficult. There's that risk of persecution. Some of you are being persecuted. But consider this as coming from God. Consider this a purifying uh, kind of discipline. Uh, so having, having said that, having, having said that, um, I was just going to say those first two or three verses, I can remember, you know, being in, being in campus ministry for 20 years as I was, it was in terms of, um, of biblical exposition, Sometimes it was a really good thing, and sometimes it was not so great a thing. Um, in so far as the the quality of the exposition that's being taught, 
A lot of of conferences we went to, there were other campus ministers like me, and I was probably guilty of it my fair share of times too, just kind of shooting from the hip and whatever has a good ring to it, whatever sounds good, that's what we're going to go with, whatever will um, make uh, the biggest impression on impressionable college students, that's the point we'll make from this, and I've been guilty of that too. But I remember distinctly at a big, um, at a big, um, college student conference in, uh, in um, Alabama, not far from, uh, from Auburn, um, the point was made of, uh, the, the point was made, I think it was actually in a skit. I'm going to be fair about this. I think the point was made in one of those infamous uh, college student skits. And the picture was, coming right out of, of Hebrews 12, that we're, we're down here and we're struggling and we're believing and we're doing our thing and, and all around us is this cloud of witnesses. It's like this great big, uh, it's like Jordan Hare Stadium, you know, with, with, but instead of fans from Auburn and the other team, you know, lifting up in those bleachers, ascending up into the clouds, it's, it's our forebears. It's Paul and Peter and the apostles and it's grandma and grandpa and all our aunts and uncles that have gone on before us and they're behind us and they're cheering us and they're rooting us on and good job and proud of all of our victories and all of that. And it really, it really sounds impressive. Unfortunately, that's probably not at all what the Hebrews writer is saying. Um, he's, uh, he's saying, look, you've got, as Alan prayed, we've got all these folks who lived before us and in spite of all the troubles that they went through, they were still faithful. And witnesses are not mere spectators. You know that word witness? It comes from that Greek word that, that also we get the word martyr from. And so these were men and women who preceded us in faith, preceded us in life and death, many of whom paid that ultimate price and sacrifice. And it, we are the ones, we are the ones that have been allowed because of the Hebrew writer to, to be spectators into their lives and hopefully, uh, hopefully draw from that the encouragement that we need to live those kinds, of, uh, those kinds of lives. Well, as Alan said, I don't want you to be too intimidated by this handout. It's not as bad as it looks. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll see why it's so long here uh, in a minute. Did you get one, Charlie? Well, you, you can't get away with it. You've got to go back there and, uh, and get one too. Not really. You don't have to. But, but you might be left out. There is some, some reading to be done from it. All right. Well, let's, um, let's read the, the text. And we are going to read 35b. Uh, well, let's re- just read the whole verse, 35. Women received back from their dead. This is Hebrews 11. Women received back from their dead, uh, received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released. That's an important line. I want you to remember that. Refused to be released. So that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. 
These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Alan taught last week from 32 through the first part of verse 35, featuring those whose faith was rewarded by great blessings from God. Tonight, we consider the lives of anonymous heroes whose faith strengthened them to be led by God to agonizing but glorious deaths. And if you think that those verses we just read um, are are scary, uh, wait till you read some of this stuff that I've copied for you from uh, from the Maccabees. the, uh, the others of the last half of verse 35 um, is meant to prepare us listeners for a stark contrast to what has just preceded. Uh, these folks live faithful lives and look at all the rich blessings they received from it. Others, however, so we, we almost want to read it like this, but contrarywise, others were tortured etc., etc. And I want to look at that. I want to look at that first part. Um, Others were tortured and refused to be released. Uh, Built into that word that's uh, translated for us, tortured, is really a description of the machine of that torture. Uh, You you, you can you can almost hear in the Greek noun. It's 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 can any of you, any, any band folks in here, high school band folks, is there an instrument in the band that sounds a little bit like tympanon? Yes, thank you, Jim. Thank you. You were chorus. Boy. <laughs> no, the, I had to take that for coaching. That's right. It's the, it's the, the timpani drum or the kettle drum. You know, that, that one that guys come out with almost baseball bats and, and hit and, and beat. Well, the, the, the kind of torture is, is pictured almost in that very word. It's a, it's a rack or it's a post that they're stretched out on. And um, the, the, uh, the, the, the torturer uh, is, is going to beat on, on that person usually until, until, uh, until death. Sometimes they were even turned on their stomachs and beat on, the, beat on the stomach so much that the internal organs are just completely broken away and that's the way, that's the way that they suffer that death. But it's, uh, it's, there, it's there in that very word, the, the instrument of torture, the means by which, by which they died. Um, and I'm, I'm making a point of that because one of the sections we're going to read from uh, the, the Maccabees um, text will, will refer us to, to that kind of experience. Um, <clears throat> the NIV renders the next phrase, phrase, refused to be released, refused to be released. You know, torture is a, a tool. It's, uh, it's not just for the intended purpose of killing the victim. Um, death by a cross 
Well, there are any number of ways that the Romans and the Persians before them could kill people. I mean, it could be a, just a quick lopping off of the head or running the sword through the heart. Lots of ways to kill somebody, but that cross where somebody can linger for days, uh, that sends a message. And that's really what uh, torture is about. It's intended to elicit a confession, to gain information, or, and this is what we're talking about here, to defeat a cause or a principle by forcing adherents to renounce or recant. That's what it's after. If you can get a leader of a movement, uh, uh, someone who is thought highly of by a community to recant what they believe, not only, uh, who cares whether that leader lives or dies, you have defeated in principle, much of the momentum driving that movement. And that's what, that's what the Romans intended to do with um, uh, hanging Jews and, and then killing Christians. Uh, that's what they were after. We're all familiar with the conditional warning given to martyrs past and present, recant or die. I Googled that, recant or die. And I wasn't sent back to references of, uh, of torture of hundreds or thousands of years ago. There were several references up at the top of these lists of current situations of people around the world who are being told that very same thing. You better, you better recant what you're saying. You better go back on what you believe and make that public or we will kill you. So that sort of thing is still going on. Well, um, I want us to get into this little history part of the lesson. Um, this, if any of you start getting bored or, or with this, you can do like our teachers at school and stand up and go, go stand at the back. Uh, or you may just want to fall asleep during this one. That's okay too. And very few of us uh, probably are students of the Apocrypha. Um, until four or five years ago, I didn't even have a, um, an edition of sacred scripture that included the Apocrypha. Uh, we're, we're Protestants, and our canon consists of the 66 books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm glad of that. But some faith traditions include within their canon the Apocrypha and uh, Deuterocanonical books. Apocrypha refers to documents and texts of dubious origins, therefore of questionable authority. That word Deutero, Deutero a canonical means, means of secondary canonical uh, authority. Uh, two books of the Apocrypha record a history of the Maccabean Revolution, um, first and second Maccabees. And we're gonna be looking at some text. What's in your handout are some excerpts from second Maccabees. Um, what I want you to realize is that most first century Jews, the ones to whom the Hebrews writer uh, was, uh, was preaching, they would have known the history of the Maccabees in much the same way that we would know American history. Now, for some of you cynics who are out there thinking, well, not very well then. Uh, and when I went to school, we, we studied American history. We knew about our founding fathers. Now, I don't know what it's like now, but I'm not gonna get on that soapbox tonight. Um, the, the Maccabees contains the history of the Jewish revolt against the Syrians under this guy called Antiochus 
uh, Epiphanes. Um, he, was, he was the fourth by that name, Antiochus. Do you pronounce it Antiochus or Antiochus? How do you do it, David? Antiochus. Um, I think when I was in Alabama, I, I said Antiochus, but now that I'm in Tennessee, I guess I need to adopt the other, the, the more correct pronunciation. Um, I have to give, go even a little bit further back. Please hang with me here. Um, a lot of y'all have heard the, the, the name uh, Alexander the Great, this conquering Macedonian guy, and, and he took over so much of the world known back then. He died a very young man, and upon his death, his kingdom was left to four of his closest friends, all generals. And over the years, Israel or Palestine was under the control of two of these descendant kingdoms. First, the Ptolemies, who were kind of based in Egypt, and then the Seleucids, um, who were based in Syria. Now the Seleucids, and here's the crux of the problem, the, the Seleucids arrested, arrested control of Palestine from the Ptolemies and the lives of the Jews went from not so bad to really terrible pretty quickly. Under Antiochus, the Seleucids were devoted Hellenizers. That is, they insisted on an empire that, you were, that was united around Greek customs. Greek religion. You dress like a Greek. Of course, you speak Greek. Uh, at least you know that language, all those things. Now, this may not be a problem up to a point. Um, a lot of Jews don't mind going and taking part in some of those cool Greek things, theaters and the baths and all that. But when you start trying to force faithful Jews to worship pagan gods and forcing them to to eat food that is forbidden of them. And when you profane their temple, you're asking for trouble. And that's exactly what happened. So there's this, there's this famous incident in uh, Modin. It's kind of in, it's in Judea. It's sort of, it's sort of north and, and west of Jerusalem. It's real near Emmaus. Um, and and um, an official of Antiochus visited Modin and he's trying to force locals to sacrifice to pagan gods. And as I, as I alluded to earlier, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for somebody important like that to go and find um, a, a common, a, you know, menial kind of person and try to force your ways on him. You want to find somebody in that village that is influential, that the people look up to. And so he goes to a guy named Mattathias, who is a scribe, highly respected in the village, and um, he, uh, he tries, it's, he, he, he wants to get Mattathias to, to make a sacrifice to pagan gods. And Mattathias refuses. There's a Jew in the assembly and he's thinking, you know what, somebody better, better make this sacrifice. All we're doing is killing an animal and, and sacrificing it. That's no big deal. And so he steps forward, this Jew steps forward to start to make the sacrifice. Mattathias, um, in, you know, enraged with holy fervor, uh, takes a sword and he kills this Jew. And while he's at it, he kills Antiochus' Antiochus's official as well. And this starts the Maccabean Revolution. I think it goes from around 167 to, is it 160, 161? It lasted for five, six, seven years. Uh, and several years of bloody conflict and atrocities followed. One of the, I'm, I'm 
belaboring this point and making you suffer through all of this because it's very likely that one of these or two of these incidents is believed by scholars to be the historical referent for Hebrews 11.35. There's two stories in particular that fit these Hebrews uh, anecdotes. Uh, one is the martyr of Eliezer, uh, and this is actually worth our reading, and that's why I put it in, uh, in your handout. And I'm sorry I don't have these numbered, but if you'll find on the second page the martyrdom of Eliezer. And Jim, I went right through, uh, um, I went right through the part where, I was, where we were going to... After we read the martyrdom of Eliezer, uh, then we're going to sing Faith of Our Fathers. I meant to do that earlier on, but I don't want to skip that. Um, martyrdom of Eliezer. Eliezer, one of the chief of the scribes, a man advanced in years and of comely countenance, was pressed to open his mouth to eat swine's flesh. But he, choosing rather a most glorious death than a hateful life, went forward voluntarily, voluntarily to, to, to the torment. And considering in what matter he was come to it, patiently bearing, he determined not to do anything unlawful, any unlawful things for the love of life. But they that stood by being moved with wicked pity for the old friendship they had with the man, taking him aside, desired that flesh might be brought, which it was lawful for him to eat, that he might make as if he had eaten, as the king had commanded of the flesh of the sacrifice." So they're going to sneak to Eliezer a little brisket and make everybody think that he's eating a lamb chop. Not a lamb chop, but a pork chop. Okay, that's, that's the plan here. Um, and Eliezer will have none of it. That by so doing, he might be delivered from death and for the sake of their old friendship with the man, they did him this courtesy. Okay, he had a chance to be released. That's in, that's in the last four or five verses of, he had a chance to be released, but refused it. But he began to consider the dignity of his age, his ancient years, and the inbred honor of his gray head, and his good life and conversation from a child. And he answered without delay, according to the ordinances of the holy law made by God, saying that he would rather be sent into the other world. These sections, I'm just kind of mentioning mentioned incidentally, they have a lot of references to what would be the kind of the pharisaical idea of resurrection after death. These folks are not Sadducees. I don't know when the Sadducees came along, but it's much later. Or the, they aren't them. For it doth not become our age, said he, to dissemble. And this is, I think this is really good. This is why it makes it worth reading. Whereby many young persons might think that Eliezer, that I, at the age of fourscore and ten years, was gone over to the life of the heathens. Doesn't matter what I'm actually eating, they're going to think I'm eating pork. And so they, through my dissimulation and for a little time of a corruptible life, should be deceived and, there, and hereby I should bring a stain and a curse upon my old age. For though for the present time I should be delivered from the punishments of men, yet should I not escape the hand of the Almighty, neither alive nor dead. Wherefore, by departing manfully out of this life, I shall show myself worthy of my age." And I shall leave an example of fortitude to young men, if with a ready mind and constancy I suffer an honorable death for the most venerable and most holy laws. And having spoken thus, he was forthwith carried to execution. And they that led him and had been a little more 
a little before more mild, were changed to wrath for the words he had spoken, which they thought were uttered out of arrogancy. So his friends, his Syrian friends are going to turn on him. But when he was now ready to die with the stripes, now this is, this is that timpani. He's, he's being brought to the racks. He's stretched out on this stake. He's going to be beaten to death. Um, he groaned and said, O Lord, who hast the holy knowledge, thou knowest manifestly that whereas I might be delivered from death, I suffer grievous pains in body, but in soul am well content to suffer these things because I fear thee. Now, all the, all the Jewish folks to whom the Hebrews preacher was preaching or writing, uh, they would have known this story. Um, and they would, have, they would have, in other words, this would have been an historical referent that, that, they, could, that they could relate to. Uh, Jim, would you mind leading us in faith of our fathers? Jim, that section from, uh, the, second, from the second verse, uh, read that again for us. Um, our fathers chained in prison's dark. Yeah, keep going. We're still in heart and conscience free. How sweet would be their children's fate if they, like them, could die for thee. Yeah, that seems a little bit extreme. Uh, <laughs> Uh, do, do, do any of you have the same memories that I do when I first really heard this song, when it first made the most impressions on me? It wasn't from church. We probably didn't sing it very much in church. Well, possibly, but that's not mine. That, that's not my earliest memory. Um, just by chance, we're happening upon that time of the year when you might have heard this growing up. Our generation, not, not young people, not that generation over there. It was in Bing Crosby's White Christmas album. Seems kind of odd, doesn't it? But, but it's in there. Go back and look. Bing Crosby's White, uh, White Christmas album, the one where he's laying, wearing the Santa hat anyway. But uh, we're going to make this point later on. But um, how sweet would be their children's fate if they like them could die for thee. Uh, I, would, I would just say in response to that immediately, uh, it, it's, a, it's a blessed death in Jesus to die naturally and peacefully too. Um, because we, from the time we are baptized into Christ, we have, we have died that death that is most important. If we die again for the, for the sake of Jesus, be that as it may. Uh, but I, I don't think it's something we ought to pray for or as count as possible blessing. Jim? Uh, I really hesitate to bring this up. Uh, Faith of Our Fathers was written by a man who was uh, a priest in the Church of England, but he became a Roman Catholic. And so he was really talking about, in the song, he was talking about Roman Catholic priests who had been killed by Protestants. Oh, oh, well, that, that, that does. Uh, certain class comments uh, probably should just be kept to themselves. No, that's right. The, the principle is behind it all. Well, um, I, wanted to, I wanted to look at this next 
excerpt because if you were uh, if you were repulsed by that little uh, historical reference, and by the way, you know this is. Uh, this is in the Apocrypha. We can, we can regard it, I think, and correct me, guys, if, if I'm wrong about this, but we can regard this as we would any historical document. It's not inspired. We don't take this history um, with the same kind of assurances or authority as we would from our 66 books. You know, that's the, that's the Protestant perspective. But like any other history, there is a thread of truth through it. Whether or not we can say for certainty that these are the things that the characters uh, uh, actually said or certainly were thinking, we, I don't think we can look at it with that kind of confidence, but it does give us the historical reference that folks uh, back in those days would have had. Well, we talked about the martyrdom of Eliezer, which illustrates one of those points in Hebrews 11. Now let's look at the martyrdom of the seven brothers. And thankfully, this is just part of the, of the, whole, the whole thing. Uh, seven brothers, mom's looking on, and uh, all seven were martyred, but we're only going to, I think, read about the first three or four. So consider yourselves spared. It came to pass also that seven brethren together with their mother were apprehended and compelled by the king to eat swine's flesh against the law for which in they were tormented with whips and scourges. There again, the tumpanon, the, the beating. Uh, but one of them who was the eldest said thus, what wouldst thou, I'm sorry for the King James. I tried to find a more uh, modern version. What would you ask or learn of us? We are ready to die rather than to transgress the laws of God received from our fathers. Then the king being angry commanded frying pans and brazen cauldrons to be made hot, which forthwith being heated, he commanded to cut out the tongue of him that had spoken first and the skin of his head being drawn off to chop off also the extremities of his hands and feet, the rest of his brethren and his mother looking on. Now look, I'm not doing this for, I'm not trying to be spectacularly gross here, um, but I think it's good and healthy for us to be made aware of what these recipients of the listeners of the Hebrew sermon, what, what would have been going through their minds. Um, how far did I get to the, con the, the tongue being cut out and the extremities being cut off? Did I read that part? Don't want to miss that. Verse five. Verse five. And when he was now maimed in all parts, he commanded him, being yet alive, to be brought to the fire and to be fried in the frying pan. And while he was suffering therein long torments, the rest together with the mother exhorted one another to die manfully, saying, The Lord God will look upon the truth and will take pleasure in us, as Moses declared in the profession of the canticle, and in his servants he will take pleasure." So when the first was dead after this manner, they brought the next to make him a mocking stock. And when they had pulled off the skin of his head with the hair, they asked him if he would eat before he were punished throughout the whole body in every limb. But he answered in his own language and said, I will not do it. Wherefore, he also in the next place received the torments of the first. And when he was at the last gasp, he said thus, Thou, talking to the king, thou indeed, O most wicked man, destroys us out of this present life. I look to the appeal to the resurrection here. But the king of the world will raise us up who die for his laws in the resurrection of eternal life. After him, the third was made a mocking stock. And when he was required, he quickly put forth his tongue and courageously stretched out his hands. Uh, it's, I wondered, 
uh, is this where is this where our sticking out the tongue comes from? Is that could that be the historical thing here? If you want to keep me from talking, then just cut my tongue out. I, I wondered about. Have you ever thought about that? Where in the world did that come from? Something like this, I, I wonder. Uh, in verse 11, next page, and said with confidence, these I have from heaven, but for the laws of God, I now despise them because I hope to receive them again from him. Resurrection in the body. Uh, so that the king and they that were with him wondered at the young man's courage because he esteemed the torments as nothing. And after he was thus dead, they tormented the fourth in the like manner. Now here's, this is the one I had bold faced. And when he was now ready to die, he spoke thus. It is better being put to death by men to look for hope from God to be raised up again by him. For as to thee, thou shalt have no resurrection into life. And so in, um, in the, the, the martyrdom of Eliezer and the seven brothers, a couple of things I want us to remember that the opportunities were given to them to recant. They, they refused to be released. Others were tortured and refused to be released, the Hebrews preacher said. And with the seven brothers, their mother did not receive them back to life. You see the contrast? What was in 35, um, was it 35A? Um, goodness. Um, women received back their dead, raised to life again, but others, they did not receive their dead back to life again. Their life again is going to have to be later on at a better resurrection. We're going to read about momentarily. Uh, they all died these horrible deaths, including the mother. We didn't even get to read about the fifth and sixth and seventh son. But now I want you to look at an interesting turn of phrase. The Hebrews preacher was truly, like I said before, this master of rhetorician. He juxtaposes two resurrections. In 34a, there is a temporary resurrection back from death. In 35b, the resurrection back from death is eternal and permanent. Did you get that? He calls the latter a better resurrection. Uh, this is very likely a direct reference to the martyrdom of the seventh brother who declares his confidence in the resurrection, the hope God gives of being raised by him. We didn't get that far in the Maccabees reading. So the first kind of resurrection, those women who receive back their dead, refers to a resurrection that we call a resuscitation. Life comes back into the individual's physical body, which is destined to die again. Most famous probably in our New Testaments, Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus is the best, best known example. But there are others in both the Old and the New Testaments. C.S. Lewis famously had a kind of resuscitation. Uh, though he was never actually pronounced dead, he was in a comatose state. I think somebody came in and maybe read Last Rites. It's, they, thought he was, uh, they thought he was on the very precipice of passing on to the next life. But he came back, he recovered. And in typical Lewis fashion, this is what he had to say about his almost uh, resurrection experience. So this is kind of some comic relief from all the goriness that we've been uh, experiencing tonight. Lewis said, though I am by no means unhappy. This is after he's come back from near death. I, I'm by no means unhappy. I can't help feeling it was a rather pity 
I did revive in July. I mean, having been glided so painlessly up to the gate, gate there is capitalized, painlessly up to the gate, it seems hard to have it shut in one's face and know that the one who, that, and tend to know that the, um, uh, to know that the process must someday be gone through again and perhaps far less pleasantly. Poor Lazarus, but God knows best. <laughs> Let me just, as an aside, New Year's is coming up. It would be a great New Year's resolution to read, uh, to read at least one of Lewis's books, your choice, and to read, to read one of the biographies uh, of Lewis. Um, I'd recommend Alistair McGrath's um, biography of, uh, of Lewis. And that's just kind of, a, kind of an aside. That would be a, a good thing to, uh, to resolve to do in the, in the new year. So what makes the resurrection of the martyred a better resurrection? Well, it's not a better resurrection because somehow a martyr's death is, is of greater quality or more God-blessed. We want to make sure we, we understand that. Um, it is a better resurrection simply because when, when they wake up again in that final resurrection, they do not open their eyes in the presence of earthbound humans like C.S. Lewis did and like Lazarus did. Uh, but rather they wake up in God's presence with the rest of the risen saints. And then after that, there will be no more dying uh, ever again. That's, that's the juxtaposition of the two resurrections. Well, I want to go real quickly through the, the remaining verses. Uh, in, in all of these incidences of persecution and martyrdom and death, uh, there's no specific reference. There have been a lot of suggestions. You've got the chart that Alan provided us last week. Some faced jeers and flogging. Others were chained and put in prison. Possible reference to suffering of Jeremiah under King Zedekiah. Uh, they were stoned. Zechariah the priest spoke against Joash and was stoned to death. That's in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Uh, they were sawed in two. Uh, we don't know that this was the, 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 um, the way uh, supposedly that Isaiah died. This is in a tradition of the rabbis called the Ascension of Isaiah. They were put to death by the sword. Jezebel killed a lot of prophets with the sword. They went about in animal skins. Maybe another reference there to the Maccabees, 2 Maccabees chapter 5, verse 27. They wandered in deserts, mountain caves, holes in the ground. I mean, during, during this uh, battle with the the Syrians, I mean, the, the Jews were just out in the wilderness hiding wherever they could um, and engaged in kind of this guerrilla warfare and finally did, did win and defeated the Syrians. Um, <clears throat> closing verses of uh, chapter 11, uh, for 39 and 40, uh, they, conclude, they conclude this movement of the sermon. They're preparing for, he's preparing for a transition into chapter 12. It says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. This is an echo um, of uh, this is an echo of verse 13, 11, 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. So he's alluded to this earlier. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them uh, from a distance. He says. Now, I get verse 39 well enough, the promise of the Messiah and the new covenant of God uh, after the heroes of chapter 11 lived and died. But what about verse 40? 
That's a little bit of a mind bender, at least it is to me. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Um, the first part of that's pretty easy. God had planned something better for us. We understand that. We get that. Um, our faith experience transcends and surpasses theirs in any number of wonderful ways. We have unlimited access to the Father. He's belabored this point. Jesus is our high priest. We don't have to go through another, we don't have to go through a human high priest. We've got open access to the very throne room of God. We can go there anytime we want to. There's nothing standing between us and a personal uh, uh, audience with the creator of the universe. We just don't take advantage of that access as often as we should. Guilty. Um, the, those things which stood between believers and God have been completely taken away because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice. Think of that. It's a wonderful thing to consider. Shame, guilt, this awareness of sin still being on us like tar that we can't scrape away. We don't have that anymore. Folks in Old Testament times, they could make sacrifices, but the bull, blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. You've got to keep making these every year so it's never gotten rid of. For us, it is gotten rid of. And that's a wonderful thing. We kind of take it for granted. We don't reflect on it often enough, but it's an amazing, wonderful thing. Um, ancient Jews had the synagogue, the nation of Israel, but we have the church. And there's a big difference. There's a big, we have this, we have this band of Messiah people. We have this true family with Christ as the head. And I think that's part of the answer to the last part of verse 40. They, um, <clears throat> God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And I'll bet you you heard sermons from the time you were little biddies that, that the blood of Jesus reaches back into eternity as well as it is applied now and reaches forward into eternity. It works both ways, but it had to happen on the cross before that before they could be made perfect with us. We're all the same church. There's not an Old Testament church and a New Testament church. There is one church. And the folks from back, back before all that, they've been enfolded in. The people um, out, out ahead of us, uh, they are, they are uh, in as well. We're all part of one big family. Well, uh, I'd hope to have another an additional five or ten minutes because uh, I wanted to talk about some conclusions that really... Um, uh, uh, really uh, something I, I wanted us to consider. What, what, are, we, what are we to think about uh, all of this? I'll tell you what I think about it. Sometimes I feel survivor's guilt. Do any of y'all feel that when you consider um, the, 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 our martyred forebears? Sometimes, why is my life so good? Uh, why... Uh, why do I get to sleep in a comfortable bed every night and it's heated in the winter and it's cooled in the summer and I never have to worry about my next meal and, you know, uh, there, there aren't the secret uh, ch uh, church police that are spying on me. Uh, sometimes I, I feel that way. And, and then I'm reminded, you know, it's like what I was saying before about, about faith of our fathers. Jesus never commanded us to want persecution. He never commanded us to go looking for trouble. He, he only said, he who comes after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
Well, taking up that cross, that's just a euphemism. Well, I don't know if you'd call it a euphemism. It's a metaphor for dying. He bids us to come and die, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. Obeying that commandment has meant different things depending on where you lived and when you lived and who you were. Um, Jesus prayed that, the, that this cross would be taken away from him. Take this cup from me, uh, he prayed to God. And his model prayer was, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Um, so when I'm feeling that survivor's guilt about having a Christian life that's comparatively uh, easy, try to dwell more on those things. Um, and I'll conclude, with, I'll conclude with this thought, even there were a lot of others we could talk about. I think that here's what we ought to do with passages like this. We should always, I sound like an insurance salesman, <laughs> we should always prepare for the worst. I think we should prepare for the worst case scenario, the way our lives begin, but we should pray, always pray that it never happens and realize all along that even though it's pretty good right here, right now, it could change. Let us not ever say that in America, this could never happen. We're great fools if we say that. Uh, and also know that there are parts of the world where people are going through just, just as bad things and worse than these folks we can read about. They are brothers and sisters, maybe not of our fellowship, but they're fellow believers with us. And I ought to be praying for them more often than I do. Good. Thank you. And thank everybody for coming.